1: I have you loud
2: and clear.
3: (laughs) Hello. 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 Welcome. (laughs) Science.
2: And that is to say. Physics. Medicine. Nature. Or. Space.
3: Time. The brain. Life. The universe.
2: Hello! This week, will nanobots destroy the world? Can food allergies be inherited? And are ants telepathic? It is Q&A time. We have a panel of experts who are ready and waiting to tackle your sci-curious questions. So if you have any foodie thoughts, mathematical musings, or an insectious thirst for knowledge, this is the show for you. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Well, first up, let's meet the panel of people who are going to answer your questions. We have Giles Yeo here. He is a geneticist who studies the brain control of body weight. And you're doing a bit of an experiment yourself for the BBC TV on you, Giles.
1: I am, yes. I'm currently on a vegan diet um, in order to see whether or not being vegan can be healthy. So what does that mean? You exclusively eating vegan food. I'm exclusive, I'm exclusively eating, you know, nothing with a face, nothing with a mother, and therefore just eating plant based stuff. Plant based yeah, food. You've been
2: very diligent because I offered you a biscuit outside, and you, you said no. <laughs>
1: Do you know what? I normally would cheat, but the problem is because I'm being bled and poked and weighed and, and all kinds of stuff, I feel that if I cheat, maybe it'll come out through my blood markers.
2: Because the other day you and me were at a festival, the Cambridge Science Festival, and I saw you with a packet of Monster Munch. Are they vegan?
1: They are vegan. But you're just making that No, out. no, 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 no. no. <laughs> they are definitely there. So are Oreos. Other, other cookies are available. <laughs>
2: If you have anything to do with diet or anything to do with how your guts work and how your brain controls your body weight, send your questions in for Yo. Now up next uh, is Bobby Siegel. He's sitting just to Giles' right. Bobby, tell us a bit about you. Hi.
4: Um, So I'm a secondary school teacher of mathematics, but I'm also doing a research doctorate on maths anxiety so my life goal is to help make maths a little bit less icky for the public
2: your, your other claim to fame is you did very well on university challenge yes
4: you? I mean, lasting yeah. me and my uh, my rival Eric Monkman uh, <laughs> is, it, is it as
2: scary as it looks because when, when we do it you know we're all kind of closet quiz geeks here yeah when you watch this on telly there's something about the pressure of of having to try and do what if you just write it down they're very easy mm-hmm. kind of mind-tangling questions but when you have to do it under that pressure I always go wrong is is it really really bad when you're trying to do that for real
4: absolutely I think under the cameras spotlights you know there's no second chance to re-record something and with Twitter people can be quite unforgiving so you've got to be very judicious (laughs) in how you answer questions on air
2: now you, a little bird, told me, are a bit of a rap artist. So um, <laughs> you you use rap in order to get yeah. people into your programs and into your maths projects. So we thought we'd put you to the test. I've got some some music. Are you ready? Yes, all ready. Got always a little ready. bit of a bed for you here. <laughs> okay. So uh, rap away, Bobby Seagull, everybody.
4: Seems to see, girl. You can call me Bobby. You see, maths and me is more than just a hobby. Two twos are four, and four twos are eight. Starting with your tables would be just great. Area of a circle, pi r squared. Pi times two r, so circumference if you cared. Y equals mx plus c, a straight line. M the grade e and the gradient, see the intercept, be fine. Trigonometry is all about the angle, ratio, sine, cos but don't get in a tango, numerator over denominator get it right or see, I'll see you later
2: Absolutely brilliant and do you do that in the classroom? Yeah, I do that
4: I, again, it's something just to perk the kids out they'll say, so have you got a rap for us today? I'm like, if you've done the work if you get to question 10, we'll do a rap
2: do you, do you do a different rap for every every lesson then? That must take a lot of work. It must take longer than preparing the lesson.
4: Sometimes you can.
2: <laughs> Bobby Seagull. So, if anyone has any questions about anything mathsy or if you've got some homework due in tomorrow, you can just give me a call and he'll help you out. Sitting next to Bobby, we have a materials scientist, and that's Rachel Oliver. She's from the University of Cambridge. What actually is a materials scientist, Rachel?
3: Well, they used to call material scientists metallurgists and then basically people figured out you could make stuff out of things that weren't metals but you still needed to actually do some science to understand them. So pretty much if it's solid and you can make something out of it, I'm interested in the structure of that stuff and how you make it work better so that we don't just go, oh look, this material's like this but how can we change it? How can we change the structure and then how can we use that to get better performance out of that material so that it does useful things for everybody in get the real world? Who,
2: um... When you say you're a material scientist, do they sort of think you're talking fabric and curtains and things?
3: Yeah, so when I said I was going to do material science at university, one of my mum's friends did say, Oh, lovely, textiles, such a good career for a girl. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs>
2: Whoops. Oh, dear. I bet that went down like a Led Zeppelin. There's another material bit, for you. Yeah. <laughs> so anything to do with how the world around you is constructed and made and manufactured and optimised, Rachel is your person. And uh, last but not least, we actually have a biologist, and ant expert. That's Chris Poole. He's from the University of... Uh, he's from Royal Holloway. Have you got an anti-fact for us, Chris? Yeah. So one of my favourite facts about social insects is
5: that the queens are so extraordinarily long-lived the termite queens hold the record for the longest living insect in the world. And I wondered if you guys wanted to guess how long do you think they actually live? Ooh,
1: three years. Bobby,
5: you're the, you're the maxi yeah, person. Yeah, you're
4: yeah. good with numbers. That's how long um, are they? I was going to probably say like 18 to 24 months.
5: Yeah, so maybe a honeybee queen would live about that long, but termite queens live much, much longer. So 100 years? Okay, not quite that long. <laughs> so the longest living ant queen is about 30 years. Really? and the, Yeah, and termite queens hold the record at 50 years. Wow. It's so half How a
2: century. That, that really is a very, very long time. <laughs> and- do, do you know what the person who studies ants is called? One of you. What, yeah, a what, what are you? You're a myrmecologist. Yeah. So what do you call a collection of you lot then? Are you a murmur of myrmecologists, or, or perhaps a, a sort of... What yeah. is it when ants run around, they, f- they formicate, don't they? That's the, they yeah. collect, that's the term yeah. for ants running around. So is there a sort of formication of know? Perhaps. I haven't thought about it before. <laughs> Let's kick off with this one for you, Giles.
0: I've heard that eating raw food is better than eating cooked food because the body has to do more to break it down. Is this true?
2: I think it depends
1: on what you mean by better for you. Now, if you talk about calories, then it is true that cooking increases caloric availability. So, briefly, caloric availability is how many calories you'll get out of the food rather than as compared to how many calories are actually in the food. So, 100 calories of sugar is 100 calories of sugar. But if you take 100 calories of sweet corn and you look in the loo the next day, you clearly haven't absorbed anywhere close to 100 calories of sweet corn. Now, with regards to cooking, um, If you ate raw celery, that's six calories pr- pretty much for a medium stick of raw celery, whereas if you cook it, you get 30 calories, okay, just, just by cooking the celery. So if you are looking to reduce your calorie intake, then yes, cooking it, you get more calories, but if you don't cook it, then you get less. But then cooking also does a lot more. For example, it kills parasites. And also there are certain minerals and vitamins that are only made available from the food after you cook it. So I think the answer is from a pure caloric point of view, maybe, but is it necessarily better for you? That depends.
2: So the whole argument about how many calories you burn off in your jaw muscles, crunching things up, which is another consideration, that, that's, that's really kind of nothing. Do you, you, you reckon, sorry, Rachel, I
3: have the this, microphone on. actually, if you eat celery, you're using up more calories eating it than you get From your stick of your celery, is that actually true? No, no, that's
1: that's that is it is a myth. But but it's but it's it's six calories per stick, which is not. It's just barely a myth. (laughs) (laughs) Hang on, is
2: that six calories per stick? How much you consume eating the stick, or how much you obtain by eating the stick? As in, when I say consume, as in how much you burn off eating the stick? How many calories do you need to munch it up? How many
1: calories? So, so in other words, if, uh, it depends how many calories are in a, in a stick of celery. So for example, it's probably about 6%, broadly speaking, from eating a stick of celery compared to 100% when you eat, when you eat 100 calories of sugar, for example.
2: Yeah, thank you, Giles. Mm-hmm. Bobby, we've got one here for you. Um, this came into us uh, from one of our very own naked scientists, and that was Katie.
3: Why do I hate maths?
2: Somehow, I don't think she's alone. Bobby, what do you think? No,
4: she, she would join armies
2: of people, sadly. So
4: actually, being a maths teacher and not an English teacher, I, I consulted Wikipedia to see what hate means. And let me, let me read you the definition of hate. It's deep and extreme dislike, especially invoking feelings of anger or resentment. And That's, that's a strong word. It's not dislike or it makes me a little bit queasy. This is like
2: an intense feeling. But, um, but lots of people have had the double maths feeling. I mean, who, who here had double maths at school? Bet you all had double mm. maths, right? and, mm. and who really, really looked forward to it? Bet you, bet you didn't. Yeah, yeah. I liked What's it. it? <laughs> <laughs> You're a I really material scientist, much, so. Rachel. You, you, yeah, you, I'm you, a geek. Maths <laughs> is at the heart of everything. Did, did you like maths, Chris? No, I hated it. I yeah, really, you go I really yeah, it. It. It was awful at it. Oh, there God. you go. So all the bio people in here, the biologically folks, <laughs> people, fluffy science. We yeah, call the fl- the fluffologists <laughs> the fluffologists, like me and Charles yeah. and Chris. We, we we're in Katie's camp, Bobby.
4: Yeah, there are different types of mathematicians. I think everyone here is probably competent at maths, but I think there's one startling fact. I work with a called National Numeracy. And they said that 50% of working adults in the UK have the numeracy skills of an 11-year-old. They asked them to work out a 10% increase in the salary. So with or without a calculator, half the working population can't do that. So that's a really damning statistic of where maths is in this country.
2: Mm. So what are we going to do about it?
4: I think partly it's cultural, partly it's reputational. So I think it's easy to trash maths. Again, if you go with your friends to the pub and have a drink and you say that you do maths... Everyone starts patting each other on the back, saying, Oh, I couldn't do master school. I was terrible. But if you said you couldn't read, people would look at you like, What? You're, you're a cultural philistine. You don't
2: read. But well, they say that about opera, don't they? I've noticed that if, if you admit to not liking art or sport mm-hmm. or, or opera or something, people will look, look at you like you're some kind of cultural prior. But if you turn around and say, I don't like science, then people. Do actually laugh when yeah. they say, "Oh well, you know yeah so it 's all foreign language to me, mm-hmm. and it 's interesting how there is that distinction
4: yeah and again, I do think elements of cultural aspects of this i 've got cousins who are living and in, raised in india, and i 'm ethnically Indian. And I compare my cousin's attitudes in India to my cousin's in the UK attitude to mathematics. And in India, when people do well at maths, they seem to say, oh, you're doing well at maths because you're working hard. Whereas in England, if kids do well, they're attributed to a talent and flair. And I think as a society, as soon as we attribute mathematical competence to flair,
2: it's easy for the vessels to say, oh, I don't have any flair, so I can never be good at maths. Do you think, to a certain extent, though, it's down to the teacher? Because someone like you who stands up in front of a class, does a rap, engages the class, gets their attention from the get-go, like you've got all of our Mm-hmm. intention in here you made us laugh and then begin to think that's the critical thing isn't it we need more good teachers yeah i
4: think teachers definitely play a role but also parents play a role so again at parents evenings every time a, a mom or a dad says to their child don't worry you're failing at maths i fail too so as a society we need to stop accepting that maths failure is a good thing we need to start saying no actually it's not a good thing what can we do to turn it around
2: like the social norm it's okay yeah. to to be a little bit on the large side these days giles you're nodding um in your in no, i'm not saying you're a bit on the large side you're interested <laughs> in people who gain a bit too much weight and people have shown that it, the social norm has sort of crept up that it's okay to to sort of not worry about your diet so much as perhaps we did historically and it's the same with with this isn't it yeah i
1: think so it's it's because it's acceptable to say oh no I'm, and i say it i am mm. equally to blame yeah. to say i'm terrible at maths mm. and oh, no, i hated it it's, mm. it's cool now am i Terrible at maths. I hope not. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to to, to get end up and end up getting a PhD. But you're you're absolutely right. Just in what we said, we have immediately painted ourselves into a terrible at maths um, um corner. Even though I don't think we're going to be terrible at it.
2: Not just maths are things and people hate, is it, Chris? Because insects have a bit of a bad rap too, don't they? Yeah,
5: definitely. And I mean, this is also probably quite psychological. So I know my sister was terrified of spiders, and I think that comes from my mum being terrified of spiders. So I think it is this inherited cultural phenomenon but at the same time I do think some spiders and other insects uh, evolutionarily might have posed a threat to us so maybe there is you know well, malaria some hundreds of yeah.
2: millions of cases a year dengue 50s mm-hmm. 100 million cases a year of that the mosquito spread diseases yeah, yeah. so I suppose we have a reason to, to fear these things yeah we? definitely Yeah. plus they're hairy
1: and scary I have
2: lots of legs. Sorry, I have to turn Rachel back on. I'm I'm trying frantically to turn microphones on in enough time here. Everyone keeps talking so quickly. It's wonderful, it's wonderful. wonderful. Now, Rachel, um, we've got this question here for you from Janet
3: What's the smallest material we can build things with?
2: So, Rachel, the smallest material we can build things with, what do you think?
3: Okay, well, the smallest sort of building block of any material is an atom, okay? And I guess that's the smallest thing you can build things with. You hear about splitting the atom, it's totally true, you can split an atom. But if you have a brick, which is something you're used to building things with, and you split that brick, you kind of get two small bricks. If you split an atom into two pieces... It's like splitting a brick and ending up with, say, two balls of cotton wool or something. You end up with something completely different. So our smallest building block of materials is a single atom. And actually, people do build things with single atoms. So there are technologies whereby you can take a tiny, tiny needle, really, really sharp, and essentially use it to push materials around. And there are some guys at IBM in the US, and they use single atoms on surfaces to build what they call quantum corrals. Now, a corral, I guess, in Old West terms, is basically like a fence so they build a fence out of atoms on a surface and you can actually look at pictures of them with every atom in a circle and they're not enclosing kind of little tiny cows like a corral would have done in the old west they're enclosing electrons which are negatively charged particles and then looking at how the electrons behave in that little fence they've built
2: why actually is it useful to be able to fiddle with atoms like this though is is this actually going to help us in the future if we can engineer atoms in this way
3: well potentially so everybody uses i 'm sure like laptops and tablet computers and all this kind of thing and those computers have been getting smaller and smaller and smaller and as they get smaller and smaller they get faster and faster and the reason that computing companies like IBM Intel anybody like that are really interested in building with atoms is they're pushing the size of these little switches inside computers right down to the atomic scale. It's a tough thing to do though but there are actually even now companies out there who are developing like industrial scale technologies building at the atomic scale.
2: Is it also relevant that I think it was Chris McManus who came on this programme, he wrote the book about being right and left-handed and said that actually asymmetry begets asymmetry. So if you want to to build something asymmetric, you start with particles themselves that are asymmetric. So if you want to build, say, a really strong component for a jet engine, Mm. then you actually have to start with the right things in the right configuration down at the atomic scale so that you get something on the big scale that actually has those properties. It's just amplified up to a big scale that we can see.
3: Yeah. I mean, in terms of things like a jet engine, you need exactly the right ingredients but the metals that are used in jet engines there the important length scale there is very very tiny so down at what i would call the nanometer scale people might be more happy in millimeters and a nanometer is like a millionth of a millimeter and you have to engineer the structure of that material right down at that scale in order for the jet engines to work the thing that's tough about jet engines is that they have to keep working at really really high temperatures and you can't let the material get longer expand by even very very small fractions at those high temperatures otherwise the blades of the jet engine will start bumping into the casing and the aeroplane goes slightly bang which is not not really what you want.
2: The claim that's made by the companies that make and engineer these jet engines is that the gas stream that's running through the middle of that engine is at about 1500 degrees centigrade and the materials that the engine itself is made of melt at less than that temperature so you're actually containing and constraining and using a gas stream that's at more than the melting temperature of the thing you've made your engine from and you have to engineer it to withstand that which is just phenomenal yeah. work really isn't it
3: yeah it's amazing and there are there are different ways that materials can deform and expand and change shape and some of those we have to worry about out at like normal room temperature, but some of them only start when you get close to the melting temperature. So that means that you have to really be very clever about how you engineer stretches right up at those really high temperatures. Rachel, thank you. We
2: have a panel of experts here on The Naked Scientists who are taking your science questions. If there's something you've always wanted to know, give us a tweet to at Naked or send in your questions to chris at nakedscientist.com and we'll get those questions into one of our future programmes like this one. Still to come, we're asking, can we store information in light? Can food allergies be inherited? And will nanobots destroy the world? Chris, here's one for you. It comes from Caitlin, who is in Nottingham.
3: How do ants know if the queen dies? Are they telepathic?
2: So telepathic
5: ants, fact or fiction, Chris? That's, well, to be honest, it's not a far cry from what they're able to do. So I guess if telepathy is being able to sense someone's emotions or their internal state or what they're thinking, ants kind of do have a way of being able to do that. So they use chemicals, smells, pheromones, and queens actually emit what we call a queen pheromone in the colony and what this pheromone does is actually tells the workers in the colony that she is the queen but it actually has another role as well so it acts as a infertility sort of signal so it suppresses the ovaries of the workers and stops them from reproducing so if the queen dies she obviously stops emitting that signal um, and that's how they are able to tell whether or not the queen is present anymore and Actually, the workers themselves can then start laying eggs and trying to get some reproduction. Is that
2: what happens? So if the queen is lost for whatever reason, then will will a new queen emerge from amongst the ranks, if you like? So it really
5: depends on the species. But in your sort of average ant, then generally no. So the queen, once she's lost, she's lost. And in bumblebees as well, once she's lost, she's lost. So what happens to them? What happens to the
2: colony? Does it just sort of go into anarchy
5: or something yeah so again it depends on the species but if it's a species where workers are able to still lay eggs they can lay male eggs so they haven't been fertilized so they're not able to make males or make females but they can lay male eggs which will basically disperse and mate with a queen so it's an opportunity for if the queen dies it's this sort of second resort for the workers to get some reproduction in
2: ah so the genes live on even though the colony itself may be the end of the road for them Rachel?
3: So if they've I don't know made some great structure that they live in in the end does everybody in that one die and then that's kind of left empty and then is it just left forever or does another team of ants move in?
5: Yeah so as I said the workers can only produce males because uh, they haven't been mated and without the queen they're producing more workers then obviously the colony eventually just dwindles the workers die off and yeah that that sort of residence is empty i um, in honeybees you might get colonies actually moving in trying to utilize that space and in ant colonies because they're just made out of soil they'll just eventually collapse or another colony might use it yeah
2: my garden looks like a lunar landscape from all these <laughs> ants nests that have sprung up i wish a few of them would actually die and i don't mean that in a nasty way they're just ruining my garden mm. blinking things uh, we have uh, richard who's on the telephone and wants to talk about flu hello richard hello chris fire away
4: uh, i've got a friend and he's totally against flu vaccines and he sent me an internet link on uh, some research done recently which suggests that people who've been vaccinated spread the flu around 630% more than people who haven't been vaccinated. What do you reckon? <laughs>
2: Well, first of all, thank you for an interesting question, uh, Richard. The flu vaccine in an average year is about 75% effective. Now, what that means is that if you take an average person with an average dose of flu and an average dose of flu vaccine, they'll be protected 75% of the time. But flu isn't just one single entity, there are many different strains of flu. There's two different types of flu A, what we call flu A. There's H1N1, swine flu, and there's also H3N2. And there's also another human form of flu called flu B. All of them can cause epidemics and all of them are represented in the vaccine, All of them continuously mutate and change, and therefore you have to update the vaccine year on year on year. So you have to keep having the vaccine every year in order to make sure your immunity stays current. Now, the other problem with this is that not every year the vaccine is 75% effective. Some years the vaccine may not be as effective as others. This year has been a particularly bad year for the flu vaccine. In fact, one of the types of flu that was in the vaccine, the B strain, didn't actually work at all because the virus had mutated and changed. And the other type of flu A, the H3N2 that was in the vaccine, that didn't work very well either. It was about 20% effective for various reasons. So therefore, people who had had the flu vaccine this year were protected against one of the circulating strains, but not the other ones. And that meant that they might go around thinking that they're protected from flu and it's not going to be a risk for them and for anybody else. And therefore, they're actually more likely to be spreading flu. Now, there was an interesting study that got done by the British Medical Journal about 10, 15 years ago, got published in the British Medical Journal. And what they did was to ask people, have you had flu this winter? And then they took samples from those people and tested their blood for antibodies against the flu. And what they found is that about half the people who said they didn't have flu that year had had flu as proved by the antibodies that were in their bloodstream. So in other words, you can probably get people who have a low-level infection with flu, they don't know they've got it, they don't feel ill because they've got partial immunity to the flu, but they're nonetheless fully infectious and they go about their business potentially infecting other people and spreading flu around and they don't know they've done it. So on the whole... Summarising, flu vaccines are very good, they're money well spent, they do save lives and they help to protect patients in hospitals and care homes and they help to protect kids in schools, they help to protect people with serious illnesses like diabetes, kidney disease, heart disease and so on. But at the same time, we have to make sure everyone has one because otherwise you're leaving a gaping gap in our defences and anyone who hasn't been vaccinated then catches the flu and then they're fully infectious and they give it to other people. So it is effective. We do like the flu vaccine, but at the same time, there has to be good compliance and uptake in the population or it's not going to work. Thank you very much for the question. Back to some more questions. One for you, Bobby. Uh, Liz sent this in on our forum, forum.
4: What is the birthday paradox? Is it actually true?
2: So what, what is this? I've not heard of the birthday paradox. What does she mean?
4: Yeah, so, actually, so you might think that the most recognised song in the world might be perhaps a Stormzy rap or a Taylor Swift song or Ed Sheeran, who seems to be everywhere all the time. But actually, according to the Guinness Book of Records, it's Happy Birthday, which is the most recognised song in the English language. So it's only appropriate that the birthday paradox is something which is important in maths. But So the question is, what's the minimum number of people required, let's say in a room, for the chance of two people sharing the same birthday, being more than 50 50. And obviously, it means the same day and month, not the year. Should we ask the crew? Charles, yeah, Charles,
1: what, what, what
2: do you think? 50 50.
4: Yeah, so the chance of two people in a room having the same birthday being more than 50 50. How many people do you need in a room to guarantee that we be, be more than 50 50 chance? Oh my goodness.
1: Uh, about 180 people? Chris? About 250.
3: You see, I reckon it's quite low, maybe 30.
4: Rachel's pretty close,
3: hasn't <laughs> he? Uh, in, in Can Q- so who,
2: who was the massive Chelsea? <laughs> didn't like math.
4: In, intuitively, <laughs> we seem to think it's quite a high number, but actually, it's 23 people. With 23 people, mathematically, the chances of two people in that room sharing the same birthday is slightly more than 50%. Now, are you going to show your working?
2: Yes. Yeah. all good students we'll, should.
4: We'll, we'll, try, we'll try to. So this is one of those things where, with a whiteboard and paper, this is quite easy to demonstrate. But without, we'll, we'll try. And a good analogy is... I'm to going tr- to write this
2: down as okay. you go. So Firstly, I
4: let me just give you an analogy first before we start. So one way to think of it is imagine you had a 365-sided... Dice. I know die is singular, but we'll say dice. It sounds nicer. And after 23 throws, you're more than likely than not to get two of the same numbers of the dice land. Okay. Where does the
2: 23 number come from?
4: The 23? Yeah. Oh, so we're about to get there now. Okay, oh, okay. right. Okay. 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 Step one. So the probability of two people sharing the same birthday in a group is one minus the probability of no one sharing the same birthday. So we've got that, yeah? Right. So it's one minus the probability of no one sharing it. Okay. So let's work out the probability of no one sharing the same birthday. So in a group of two people, firstly it's 365 out of 365. That's essentially the first person can be born in any day. Then you multiply that by 364 out of 365. And explain the second fraction. So that second person can be born any day apart from the, the first day that the person the, is
2: born. That you're in, born in, yeah. Yeah, so
4: that's the 364 choices. So that's for two people. So if we expand it to three people now, we've got one less option. So that original multiplication, we multiply that, okay, with me, 363 over 365. Yep. So if you keep on doing that, adding 362 over 365, all the way to 23 people at this stage you get this multiplication to be 0.493 and if you cast your mind back a, a minute you want or to 5050 so, yeah yep. so it's 1 minus that yep.
2: so once you get to 23 people, the chance of... 51%. Yeah. Rachel's going to dispute your maths now. No, here I'm not. I'm just going to
3: point out, I'm not nearly that clever, but I am basically an engineer by training. So my pragmatic version of answering the question is that I know that in a <laughs> typical school class, you yeah. quite often get two kids sharing yeah. the same birthday. So therefore, 30 was a good guess from yeah. that point so of view. So that's the benefit
2: of wisdom. Absolutely. So, yeah. Wisdom.
3: Yeah, so absolutely. no maths, really, just like, consent. And just on the,
4: on the birthday of paradox, if anyone's a football, anyone a football fan here? Charles, you look, look
2: like a footballer. You're not a football fan? American football fan. American uh, football okay. fan. Okay, Chris, <laughs> you're a footballer? Unfortunately not.
4: Uh, okay. can, can you indulge me on my football-related birthday Go on, paradox? Then. Okay, Go on, so we've got the World Cup coming up, and this is actually a great test ground for the birthday paradox because, coincidentally, the number of people in every registered World Cup squad is 23 people, and there are 32 squads in the World Cup. So if people want to test whether this theory is true... I think the World Cup squads get announced on the 4th of June. Go on the FIFA website that day, check out all the squads, be a nerd like me and see how many squads. And in the last two World Cups, I think in the 2014 World Cup, there were 16 squads out of 32 that had two people training the same birthday. And the World Cup before, there were 15 out of 32, so just under 50%. So it does work.
2: I'm guessing, but I think people will be looking at the FIFA website for reasons other than who's got a birthday in common. But thank you for that lovely update. We enjoyed it very much. Back to you, Rachel. Helen on Facebook has got a question for you.
3: Can we use light to store information? And if so, how much light do we need? Light and information. That's a really cool question. So storing information with light is actually quite hard because storing light, keeping it kind of stable in one place is difficult. But transmitting information with light is actually something we do all the time. So you can take this back like a really long time. So I guess even in ancient times, people used fire to send signals. And certainly in Elizabethan times, there were these beacons set up all around the country, which were there to be lit if they saw an invading armada coming from Spain. And eventually they did and they lit their beacons and warned London and I guess Dover of what was happening and what they needed to do. In the modern world, oh, you hear adverts on the telly for super fast fibre optic broadband. So that's a kind of slightly more sophisticated way, but it's basically sending pulses of light down long, thin pieces of glass to send information about the internet. So there's the question, how small can we go with like, how little light can we use? Okay, so we talked before a little bit about atoms as like the smallest piece of a material that you can have. The smallest piece of light you can have is something called a photon. It's what we call fundamental particle of light. And it's a really amazing thing. We can actually do experiments which show that light is a stream of particles. And at the same time, light is also a wave, which sounds completely contradictory. And we can transmit or store or move information on a single photon. And interestingly, You can think of photons not just as being particles but of point in a specific direction. That's a property of the light called its polarisation. For example, no, light pointing up is a one, light pointing sideways is a zero would work. And then you can transfer information like that on a single photon, the tiniest possible particle of light.
2: And in in essence, this is how we're transmitting data at terabit rates all over the world now, and fibre optics for the internet, isn't it? I mean, that's how programmes like this are streaming all over the world at the moment.
3: Yeah, I mean, we're not using single photons yet. We're using pulses with lots of photons in. That's partly because when it goes down the fibres, quite a lot of the light gets absorbed into the glass. So if we only send it on single photons, we would lose out. But there are schemes for using single particles of light to transfer information perfectly securely. So you can use it then to basically keep really, really valuable information very, very safe. And there's even then schemes for how you deal with the fact that you lose large chunks of your photons down your fibre that gets absorbed into the material. Rachel, thank you very much.
0: The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost effective voice, internet, and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can
2: empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. And I'm joined this week by a panel of experts who are ready to take on your science questions. With me are mathematician Bobby Siegel, geneticist Giles Yeo, material scientist Rachel Oliver, and Chris Pull is talking all things insects. If you'd like to ask a question for a programme like this, you can tweet it to at Naked Scientists, you can email chris at com, or you can find us on our Facebook page now we're going to have a little pause to have a quiz this is where actually i put some questions to the panelists and then we're going to have two teams now team one is going to be giles and bobby And team two is going to be Rachel and Chris. We have three rounds and you get a bing or a bong um, according to whether or not you get it right or wrong. The team at uh, the end of the three rounds who has the highest score uh, goes home as our big brains of the week. The team who has the lower score doesn't. Um, If there is a tie break in that unlikely circumstance, then we actually have a tie break question for you. So team one, Bobby and Giles, here is your question. You may confer, please do confer audibly so everyone at home can hear your thought processes and you teach them to think like a scientist too. Question one, what happened first? The year that fluorine was discovered or the only draw in the history of the Oxford and Cambridge boat race? What do you both think? So f-
4: okay, boat race started about 1880s.
2: I think
1: so, it's the 160th. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, so, right.
4: So, so, so fluorine must have been discovered before. Is this fluorine?
1: Fluorine.
2: Must have been discovered before. We're going to go with fluorine. Yeah. So you're going fluorine was first. Yes. Yep. Fine. No, I'm sorry to say the only draw in the history of the Oxford and Cambridge boat race was in 1877 fluorine came along nine years later 1886. Rachel and Chris Chris question two which happened first the invention of the catapult or the first use of negative
3: numbers? Oh god so the catapult <laughs> it strikes me as something kind of medieval yeah, definitely. you know people throwing rocks at castles. Negative numbers. Mm. Do we think the Romans could do negative numbers? They understood about zero. Maybe they could do negative numbers.
5: Yeah, I feel like numbers have been around a really long time. (laughs) Number has been around a really long time.
3: We're going to go with negative numbers. No, did,
2: did you know that, Bobby? You know, no, I wasn't quite is...
4: sure. I, I think of negative ima- imaginary numbers, but I wasn't thinking of negative integers.
2: No, the the answer is the catapult that came along in 400 BC. Negative numbers in the Han Dynasty in China, 200 BC. So you're both all both teams doing very well at the moment. Your net score is zero. Um, <laughs> appropriately enough on that note round two is called what's bigger so um hopefully your score by the end of this round <laughs> back to team one bobby and giles okay. which is bigger the lifetime of an adult housefly or the time taken for the apollo astronauts to reach the moon
4: okay how long did it take about three days four days to reach it
1: took the moon? three days or four days the average housefly right yeah all the way from maggots, all the way to the... Or doing the flyy bit. They fly bit? Oh, they might be doing the flyy bit. Or just the flyy bit. I think we're going to have to go with the moon. Because if you include the maggot stage, so then, then it's long, definitely like. But longer. It's, long, it's just a flyy annoying yeah, part. Yeah, just a flyy annoying okay. part. So we're going to go with the moon.
2: Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. Insect man, Chris, do you know the answer to this one? How I it does not imagine they only live a couple of days. But... Some do. Actually, okay. things like the glowworms that yeah. turn into a gnat live just for a few days long enough to mate. But your average nice, meaty, big blue-bottle housefly, they last two to four weeks. They're quite long-lived, actually. Oh. It took the Apollo team three days to reach oh. the Moon. The New Horizons Pluto probe, which was the fastest spacecraft ever created, which went out past Pluto last year, launched in 2006, that did the same journey in just eight and a half hours. But certainly the mm. fly trumps it. Right, Rachel and Chris, which is last... Larger, the average length of the small intestine or the length of nose hair grown by a human over a lifetime.
3: <laughs> now, I know that the small intestine is surprisingly long, yeah. but I have no idea how much nose hair a human grows in a lifetime. is
5: like a few millimetres a day? Oh, not a day. Chris, is just, sorry, Chris, Chris is just wafting his nose hair out of the way <laughs> so he can get, a get to
3: the a day, it would be like down to <laughs> so our feet yeah, quite yeah, quickly yeah. <laughs> Every- I mean how long your hair is also depends on how often your hair falls out but I'm also not sneezing that much nose hair but, I, mean, I know
5: but it, like, as men get older it grows longer because right? so, you see old oh, men get in it like, yeah, so. <laughs> and
1: sincere and apologies to any
5: older <laughs> members of the
1: audience what are we going
5: for then are we going nose hair or intestines you two I feel like it must be nose hair because so far the obvious answers have been the wrong ones. So.
3: <laughs> OK, <laughs> given I got the last one wrong, let's go nose hair.
2: <laughs>
1: Giles, do, do, you, um, do you know the
2: answer to this one?
1: I did not know that. I mean, I know the gut is pretty long, but I have no idea about nose hair growth.
2: I think you should get out what you've got in your bag under the table. So uh, what I have
1: got with me is a life-size knitted gut. <laughs> and, and, um, and who, so who, knitted who knitted this? Who this? So this is knitted actually by a consortia of professors and secretaries and research managers and um, at the Institute of Metabolic Science. And this is a life-size knitted gut, otherwise known as the food to poop tube. And so this is the mouth. Oh, bit.
2: fantastic!
1: And then if I hand, if I can hand hand it around, so that's the. I've
2: got the anus. That's yeah. the, no, I've got no, 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 no. I've got the tongue. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. And then if I then hand. There we go. That's the size. Goodness, this is huge. Of a uh, of uh it's all the way around the studio. All around okay, the studio. OK, so I've got the tongue at this end. Mm-hmm. I've got an esophagus. And then what's this bit? This is the stomach, is That's it?
1: That's the stomach. And attached to it will be the liver, the pancreas, the gallbladder. Pancreas,
2: green gallbladder. It's all colour-coded as well. This is, is. great. The gallbladder. Because bile really is green, isn't it? That's Absolutely. what comes out the gallbladder. Then into this, this first bit of the small pink tube. What's that? that? This this is the
1: whole thing. It's the small, small, it's intestine. The small intestine. And yeah. where all of the digestion actually happens. And so depending on how far down the food goes is how long it takes to digest and the further down the food goes the fuller you actually feel well, so I before mean, it breaks down before it actually breaks down before it breaks down to its uh, constituent parts to be absorbed the longer that takes the fuller you actually so feel so what
2: should i be swallowing to get as much food as far as possible down my small intestine so i feel as full as possible then what's what's a good food stuff to do that
1: okay for one thing is actually protein because of all the, the protein to fat, to carbohydrates, in that order, takes the longest to digest. And so that's how the Atkins diet works, for example. When you actually eat a lot of protein in in the Atkins diet, so much of it travels further down the gut. You get fuller, you eat less, you lose weight.
2: And uh, on that note, if you are intrigued as to how long the intestine really is, the average length of the small intestine, including Giles' knitted gut, is about six metres. Over a lifetime, though, on average, a human grows two metres of nose hair so actually you weren't wider than mark there chris when you were suggesting <laughs> that although two millimeters a day yeah d- d- seems <laughs> quite prolific next question round three is science fact or science fiction and thank you giles that was brilliant this is for bobby and giles true or false ants have two stomachs what do you think bobby and giles ants have two stomachs
4: okay so cows have two stomachs
2: cows have two stomachs
4: why would ants need so cows have two stomachs because they grass that's right those. so they
1: need a rumen in order, to, in order to to ferment the grass what do
4: ants eat I grass. Think
1: grass so they they would probably need I've eaten the bottom of, a, of an ant in Australia once it was very very that's a lemony flavour isn't it a very lemony yeah, flavour yeah yeah, yeah. So, slightly um, off topic we... here though what, <laughs> yeah. what's the answer to <laughs> the quiz do you, it, do you it's true I'm
4: should... gonna go with true Yes, yeah, you go for
2: that I find that's true,
4: true. you going for true
2: Yes, <laughs> finally. Yeah, they, they do. It's, it's so actually they can enjoy they can enjoy two courses. Of course, yes. there's the main course and then the anti-pasta. Okay. Oh. Ah. No, no, it, it is true. Did you know that, Chris? Did you know that ants have two stomachs? I didn't know. we <laughs> got, got the ant man caught him out. One of the stomachs is for holding food for their own consumption. That is the anti-pasta. Yeah. The second one's to hold food that they're going to share with other ants or take back to the queen. Um, oh. This is the process. No, do you know the name of the process, Chris, of doing this? Yes truffle access <laughs> very good Trophing. there you go isn't that appropriate you won't forget that one in i preferred this this was called the crop i never thought of it as being an actual stomach ah, now he's disputing the answer to the quiz <laughs> <laughs> okay let's move on quickly before he catches us out right team two rachel and chris now they've got one point so it's it's sort of on this one so this is pressured moment for you true or false triscophobia is fear of the number 30
3: I feel no, like he'll know that one
5: um, I feel like a no I feel like well tant right?
3: is the French for 30 so but is there really a word for the fear of the number 30
5: maybe there is <laughs> I
3: don't know what else it means though so what do you think what do you think true, true or false, or false? <laughs> I'm going to go true <laughs>
2: you're going true no it's what well actually i go for that <laughs> wrong it's this oh! <laughs> actually, it's not, it's not I, I pressed the wrong button um, <laughs> It's, no, you don't know which was the right answer. I'll, I'll tell you. Um, actually, it's wrong. It is fear of the number three. Oh, I tell you okay. what, the tiebreaker was good, though, and we almost got there. Would you like to hear the tiebreaker yeah, all the same? Because right, it, it yeah. is quite interesting, the tiebreaker. To the nearest ten, how many multiples of their own body weight can a dung beetle move at one time? So I'll ask you one at a time, so you can all speculate. It's quite amazing, this. And we'll come to Chris last, because he probably has the best chance of getting it right. But, Charles, what do you think? Dung beetle, how much poop can they move in one go? Uh... A hundred times. Okay, Giles is going hundred. Bobby.
4: I've written down 200.
2: Bobby's going 200. We're, we're going up. Can you see Bobby's 200 and raise him at all, Rachel?
3: Oh, no, I'm going to go 30. I think 30. it's a good number.
2: Chris? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to... So I actually just was at a talk on... And I'm trying to remember what she said. <laughs> but, I mean, they're not huge. It's a good lecture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to say 50 times. 1,140 wow. times its own body weight. It's amazing. And do you know they even navigate using the stars, dung beetles? Yeah. They, they Isn't that true, isn't it, Chris? They, S- they follow well, stars to work out which direction they're going to... Not quite. Gonna, so no?
5: they, the, they can't quite see the light from the start it's not strong enough but they can see the Milky Way that's bright enough for them to actually navigate by
2: and they use that to roll their ball of dung yeah. in the right direction yeah. thank you very much so our winners our big brains of the week Giles and Bobby had one point <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you only got one right I mean, no. like, before you celebrate <laughs> Sorry, too much <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> and uh, and our losers uh, but nonetheless uh, they redeemed themselves by, by knowing a bit more about dung beetles was uh, Rachel and Chris well done to you uh, This is the Naked Scientist, and we have a panel of experts who are taking on your science questions this week. Still to come, what's the most useless number, mathematically speaking, and will nanobots destroy the world? Now, we've got this one for you, Giles, from James. He's at the competition in Oxford. Can food allergies be inherited? Food allergies and inheritance, yes or no? Mm,
1: The answer is uh, yes, but it's more complicated than that. So I think the first thing I want to do is just to... There's a big difference between intolerance and allergy. So an intolerance it's almost like you can be lactose intolerant because you lack the enzyme to break down lactose. An allergy is when you have an immune response to the protein within milk, for example, for, for, for milk allergy. So an intolerance can be inherited, and that's going to be almost Mendelian. So, for example, because a very specific gene um, needs to break down alcohol and need to break down lactose, so that's inherited. Allergy is more complicated because it's an immune response. So while there is a genetic element to it, it's not like Mendel's peas. You can't say for sure if my parents were allergic, then I'm going to be allergic. So there is a genetic element to it, but it is not Mendelian. So in other words, it's not uh, for sure that you're going to inherit it if your parents happen to be allergic to a given product or item.
2: Thank you, Charles. Quick uh, clarification required for you, Rachel. Art Middleton has emailed to chris at thenakedscientist.com and says, I would really like to know about storing information with light like the question asked rather than transmitting it. Is there any information you can impart on that?
3: So the difficulty is storing the light without absorbing it. Okay? So you can do that in a thing called a cavity. Now, in the simplest sense, a cavity could basically just be two mirrors and you reflect the light backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And we can make cavities that will store light, but probably not for very long. So fractions of a second might be the amount of time that we could store a single particle of light that I was talking about earlier. So you can store information in the form of light and there are ideas for using that but the problem is the storing part, not the information part.
2: So if you had a box which was entirely mirrored on its interior and you put some light in there, would it not just ricochet around forever in the box?
3: Your problem is the entirely mirrored. So you don't ever manage to make a mirror which is 100% reflective that always bounces back the light. They're always going to absorb some of the light as well. Or some of the light's going to leak out of the box. So in your theoretical perfect mirrored box, yeah, you're doing great. But actually making one of those is so difficult that the word, word impossible is probably quite relevant.
2: Thank you, Rachel. Quick one uh, from Tim, which uh, came in for you, Bobby. Why do we count in tens? Is there a better number to count in? Why do we have this number preference for ten? What do good, you think? Good question. Uh, so
4: demonstration, put your hands up, count how many things you have digits. There we go. (laughs) I'm hoping all of us have 10.
2: (laughs) Yeah, About toes.
4: Yeah, you you could do. So the reason we count in 10s is historically because we have 10 fingers. Uh, But other cultures, other civilizations are different things. Aztecs have used 20. The Babylonians have used 60. There's some indigenous groups of people in South America that use three or four. And again, if we um, happen to be based in the Simpsons land, Homer has eight fingers. So he could equally
2: count in base eight. So really, it's just a quirk of our 10 fingers uh, being there. Thank you, Bobby. Very quick one for you, Chris. Heather on Facebook uh, wants to know, why don't insects get as big as dogs do? Yeah, I mean, so
5: the largest insects today sort of are about 18 centimetres. And actually a few years ago, there was a stick insect discovered in in China, which is actually 60 centimetres long. But, you know, back in, you know, 100... Uh, 500 million years ago, there were insects the size of seagulls flying around. So there was a... The size of bobby seagulls. Yeah. (laughs) So there was um, basically a a dragonfly which was flying around. which And also you had millipedes, which obviously aren't an insect, but they got up to two metres long. And the prevailing theory is that back then there was just a lot more oxygen in the atmosphere. And because they breathe passively through these network of air-filled tubes, the larger you get, the harder it is... For that diffusion-based respiration to work, so it's kind of like if you were to, if you snorkel near the surface, it's easy for you to get enough air. But if you were sitting on the bottom of a swimming pool with, let's say, a three-meter-long snorkel, you could imagine how much harder it would be to get enough oxygen and enough CO2 back out. And that's essentially why we think um, insects are limited because today the levels of oxygen
2: are much lower than what they have been, um, you know, back in very ancient times. So it's all down to oxygen. Thank you very much, Chris. Rachel, one for you. Somewhat apocalyptic, this, from TED. Will nanobots destroy the world? What's a nanobot?
3: Okay, so this I think comes from an idea which was originated by a guy called Eric Drexler, who is one of the fathers of nanotechnology. So, nano is this sort of millionth of a millimetre length scale. And Eric Drexler came up with the idea of these tiny little robots that he'd hoped would be like really useful, so they could essentially. make things for us on that tiny scale and he thought well you know what you need is the robots to be able to make more robots and then they can make more of the useful things but then he started to worry about well maybe if the robots can make more of themselves then they can make more and more of themselves and kind of eat up everything in the lab they're in and then having eaten the lab they're in sort of set off across the city consuming and there's this idea of the grey goo where everything in the world gets turned into nanobots. Having said all of that I possibly should reassure listeners that I don't think it's very likely to Happen. In terms of stuff that scientists can make at the moment, we're talking about things that don't self replicate, they don't remake themselves, but they can self assemble, they build themselves in the first place. Those sorts of processes, they're workable, we do them in my lab, but you have to provide very much exactly the right ingredients and exactly the right conditions, by which I might mean the temperature or the pressure, those kinds of things. So with current technologies, I don't think we need to be scared at all however it would be stupid to say oh this is physically impossible because we know about self-replicating entities but what we'd have to sort of design deliberately really is something that comes with its own power pack that is completely adaptable to all sorts of different environments to different chemical sort of species being available that also carries all the information it needs in itself and yeah I mean we're starting to design life and life did evolve but it took quite a long time for then life to start from some kind of puddle on the barren earth and turn into what we have now. And it's not actually turned out to be grey goo. So I think we're probably safe.
2: Good to know that material scientists have got our back. Thank you very much, Rachel. Now, Bobby, here's one for you. Sam's been in touch on Twitter and says, what's the most useless number? That is, that's, that's been insulting to a mathematician, really. Surely <laughs> all numbers are precious, aren't they, to a mathematician?
4: Yeah, so asking a mathematician... What is a useless number? It's almost the reverse of asking a parent to select their favourite child. But if we must, we must give an answer. So let's take a time machine back to 16th century Italy. Let's go to Lombardy and let's meet uh, Gerolamo Cardano. So this uh, mathematician was a polymath. He actually did biology, physics, chemistry, philosophy, writing, even uh, dabbling in gambling. And he was looking at solutions to cubic equations. So for our listeners, we have linear equations, like you know the straight line, like my rap, y equals mx plus c. Then we've got our quadratics. That's a x Squared looks like a smiley face, and then the cubics, where it's an x cubed type graph. So he was looking at solutions for these, and then he came across some solutions which were imaginary. So, an example that he gave was he said, What happens when you expand? So, let's bear in mind again, so uh, 5 plus the square root of minus 15, and you multiply that by 5 minus the square root of minus 15. So, if we can mentally picture that, you multiply the 5 and the 5, so we're doing double bracket expansion. Boys and girls. You get 25.
2: <laughs> then we- <laughs> G- Giles has done it already. And
4: said- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you get the 25 there. So we get a minus 5 lots of root minus 15. And we got the opposite, a plus 5 lots of root minus 15. So they cancel out. And at the end we get minus lots of, uh, the root of minus 15 squared. So let's see. So now we've got 25. We've got a minus minus 15. So that gives us 25 plus 15. It gives us 40 plus so what Cardano said was, he said it's in Italian, so I'm, I'm doing an English accent. Thus far does arithmetical subtlety go, of which this, the extreme is, as I have said, so subtle that it is useless. So he thought that the minus square root of 15, an imaginary number, was useless. But interestingly, over time, imaginary numbers became very useful. Who's planning on going on a holiday this summer, anyway? Taking, Pretty much everyone, Yeah, <laughs> t- 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 taking <laughs> Taking a plane, I guess. Yep. And actually, air traffic relies on radar. And actually, radar uses complex computations where they distinguish stationary objects from moving ones. And for this, they use imaginary numbers because it makes the calculations a lot more manageable than if you just had straightforward, standard, real numbers. So there you go. Imaginary numbers are real and not as useless as a
2: Cardano thought. So there are useless numbers, <laughs> but they're not really useless. Exactly. Thank you very much, Bobby. Uh, Stan is on the telephone. Hello, Stan. Hi, Chris. How are you? Very well. Fire away.
0: Right. Basically, it's very briefly, when I snore, it makes my wife wake up. When she snores, it wakes me up. So when I snore, why doesn't it wake me up?
2: brilliant question. The answer is, Stan, that when you go to sleep, actually your brain disengages a lot of the flow of sensory information coming back into it. A good example of this is why you don't act out your dreams, for example. We know that we all dream, we do it every night, and we dream many, many times a night, probably about 20 times a night you have a dream. But you don't find yourself stalking uh, people around your house, jumping out the window and that kind of thing, because there is a specific structure in your brain stem, which is called the subcerulea region. And when you go To sleep and start to dream, this activates and it disengages the flow of information coming back out of your brain to tell your muscles what to do, and it also damps down the flow of information coming up your spinal cord, coming into you. So you're effectively disengaging your sensitivity to the things that you do yourself. There's also another region of the brain, which is where what's called the parietal lobe and the occipital lobe and the temporal lobe all meet. This area of the brain. This has a strong ability to suppress any sensory information coming into your body so you can't tickle yourself for example because this area knows that you're about to tickle yourself and it says to your brain to your consciousness in a minute i'm going to tickle myself so when you feel the tickle sensation come in it won't surprise you you're expecting it and because you're expecting it it doesn't arouse you. It's the same with your snoring. You're making those noises yourself, you're suppressing your own sensory system, so you are not aroused or woken up or stimulated by that sensation. But when someone else does it, because it's unpredictable and unexpected, we notice it. Great question. Giles, here's a very quick one for you, and it is from Rob, who's in London. Is it possible that dopamine neurotransmitters are playing a critical role in the regulation of food intake? Why do I feel so happy when I see my food arriving? Usually, in my case, it's because I've been sitting for ages in the restaurant. But what's he actually getting at, Giles?
1: So I think, first of all, we feel happy when food arrives because the anticipation of food and actually when the taste of food will tickle a set of neurons in the brain that releases dopamines that actually makes you feel happy. Now, why would this be the case? You eat, I think, primarily to fulfill a metabolic need. So in other words, I have burned 1,000 calories. I need to eat 1,000 calories. The problem is that you need to eat more than a thousand calories, say 50,000 years ago in the Serengeti, because you're not guaranteed your next meal. And so what happens is you have to eat more than you need to buffer against the time when you actually don't have enough food. In order to make your body fight the I'm slightly full feeling to eat more, the chocolate cake when it arrives, for example, it makes the chocolate cake taste so good, you know. And so it's the so-called dessert tummy. The dessert tummy is actually in your brain. So the dessert tummy are actually the dopamine neurons in your brain making the chocolate cake taste good so that you'll continue to eat it even though you're stuffed with uh, 2,000 calories of venison.
2: And that, that's the making room even though you're full feeling that pretty, circuit in process pretty, when, when pretty you much. say to the kids eat your greens and they say no i'm full and then you say would you like some chocolate cake for afters and they suddenly have room for it that's that system
1: it's that system and the key thing there as well as caloric density so for example when you're actually thinking about eating your greens um, um because they're packed full of fiber the number of calories for every given you know gram of of celery as we talked about is n- is not that high whereas chocolate which is high in fat and sugar then for every given gram, you get a lot of calories, which means that you can actually stuff them in all the little areas of your full stomach to make sure that you eat as much as possible. But the problem is, okay, in the time when there was a a feast and famine, the problem is this has become toxic in our feast environment and and as part of the problem with with obesity today
2: and just finishing the show where we began giles you began and i took you to task about monster munch and things i was just kidding but how is the vegan diet working out for someone who normally you you would normally eat a, a normal sort of western diet and you've put yourself on this vegan diet regime how's it working out
1: it's very interesting i can't eat enough okay and so i've dropped i've dropped half a stone in three weeks
2: I was going to say, you do look like you've, you've lost a bit of weight. So you're saying you physically cannot eat enough to feel full?
1: No, nah, no. So what happens is I get full when I'm eating, but the food I'm, I'm getting full on is calorically less dense. So, you know, lentils and celery or something. You know, I'm just eating so, of, of the stuff where I'm mechanically full, but because I'm getting less calories out of it, then I get hungry quicker. Now, I don't tend to be a grazer. You know, I don't tend to actually snack a lot. And so I am actually getting into caloric deficiency. My my wife's very excited about this, that I'm losing weight, it has to be said. And so and so it's been very interesting for me, I have to say. And so I have lost the weight even whilst not cutting down on my food. I've been, I've been eating. I'm going to go home tonight. I'm going to have a great big bean burger. But I'm going to feel hungry uh, later in the evening. And because I can't eat pudding, I can't have uh, apple pie, I can't have anything with eggs or butter in it, I'm then not going to be able to have pudding to get my dessert tummy, to tickle my dopamine neurons.
2: How have you coped with it? Because a lot of people say when they change their diet quite radically, all of a sudden, they find that they do not feel right for a while, probably because their microbiome is a bit upset and they've, they've tuned their microbiome to eating what they normally eat. And then they suddenly make a diet switch and they say it takes a while to settle down. Are you coping OK with the total diet switch?
1: I'm coping OK. I have to say that the first week, week and a half, I realized I'm only a few weeks and I got a bit, windy, shall we say. So so but the windiness has um the windiness has 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 gone away. So no there has there was definitely an adaptation of my gut microbiome to this drastic change in my diet.
2: And do you think you'll carry on doing this afterwards or, or are you going to be so glad to get back to a bacon sandwich?
1: <laughs> there are a lot of people out there who are getting all ready to be offended by, by me doing this. But um the reality is I think I'll probably stick to vegan a cup, two to three times a week, actually. I think it's been good. I do think I eat too much meat. I do. And um, and now that I've actually spent nearly a month learning vegan recipes, I'm excited and I'm not as scared to actually cook the food. I think two to three times a week, vegan is something that I probably will
2: stick to. Good message there for all of us and food for thought as well. Thank you very much, Charles. You'll have to tell us how you get on later. That's it for this week. Uh, you heard there from Giles Yeo, Chris Pull, Bobby Siegel and Rachel Oliver. The producer this week was Izzy Clark. Join us next time when we'll be launching our Senses Month. Up first, we'll be tuning in to The Sense of Hearing to find out how it works. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University, where it's supported by the EPSRC, the SDFC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and until next time, Goodbye.